Hey folks, my name is Will Jarvis. Along with my dad, Dr. David Jarvis, we record the podcast Narratives. Narratives is a project exploring stories about progress. In what ways are we better off now than in the past? Are there ways that we are worse off? What is the ideal future? How do we build it? Join us as we explore these questions with some of the brightest minds in the world. Well, hey folks, we're sitting here on a, a front porch here in Wake Forest, North Carolina. It's kind of a chilly day, but due to COVID precautions, we thought it was best to meet on a front porch and, and go from there. Um, today on the podcast, I have Quinn Lewandowski. Did I pronounce your last name right? Yeah, but every, most people get it wrong, so it doesn't matter. How do, how do people get it wrong? I'm curious. Uh, Lewandowski. Oh, Lewandowski. It, you know, it's... I know what they're trying to say, so it doesn't really doesn't matter really too matter. much. Yeah. Gotcha. That's cool. So, uh, Quinn, how are you doing tonight? I think I'm doing pretty good. Oh, happy to be here talking with you. Definitely. And uh, just to preface, I, I wanted to mention that Quinn is, is probably one of the smartest people I've ever met in oh. my life. So I wanted to want to add that there as, as a reason why I think the listeners should, should pay attention. You're an extraordinarily good friend. Oh, thank you. No, I, I, I'm just. You're also really, really, really smart. Oh, thanks. No, I, not, not in the same league, but but I do appreciate it. I do appreciate it. Uh, so, so Quinn, I wanted to get started, and I wanted to talk about a topic that we have touched on before. You and I talked to V. Mashawitz about it. Um, I may have butchered his last name again, but sorry, V, if you're listening. Um, so, what is a simulacra? I, I, this term, it's funny. I first encountered this as in, in, in an English class, yes. in college, uh, Baudrillard. Yes. Um, I know him by reputation. Uh, most of it is not. Uh, Zvi recommended that you take the good ideas and leave the rest, particularly emphatically in this case. He's a um, continental philosopher. The, the Iraq War didn't happen? That was... Yeah. <laughs> that, that was one of, his, one of his ideas, I want to say, or something like that. Yeah. Well, very... Um, from the Continental School, so there's a whole cluster of uh, qualities that you see. Um, there's less of an emphasis on clarity, and there's less of an emphasis on precision. And, right. and, and bef- before we, we dive into that, so div- there are two schools of philosophy yes. in the West. There's, there's continental philosophy and there's analytic philosophy. Yes. And so analytic philosophy, tend to think of England, yeah. I, I suppose, and the United States. And then continental philosophy on the continent, as, as one would imagine. Yes. Um, and, yeah, so some of the defining characteristics you just mentioned are uh, continental philosophy. Who, so let's name a couple of continental philosophers, perhaps, and analytic huh. philosophers. Camus and Sartre, definitely. Okay. Uh, Nietzsche usually gets thrown in there. But he's interesting. Hegel, perhaps. Uh, I think so, yeah. He definitely, my brain categorizes him as continental. Gotcha. And, huh. and so Baudrillard. Yes. You just mentioned, uh, how about analytic? Bertrand Russell, my personal favorite, uh, John Stuart Mill, Voltaire, David Hume, uh, Immanuel Kant, who I'm not sure they would have automatically classified him because I don't find him always entirely clear. And gotcha. I think partly the problem is with me, but not completely. Gotcha. That, that's a good point. That uh, So, yeah, Kant, maybe less clear. Yes. Uh, analytic is, is traditionally what one would think of as at least for me, philosophy. So, uh, 
<laughs> I guess I was just raised in America, so perhaps that that yeah. goes along with it. But Nozick, uh, who else? You know, I like him a lot. Yeah, all the stuff I've read, I ought to read more. John Rawls, like actually, yes. you know, trying to think through logically all kinds of different problems. Yes. And, and Continental seems to be more almost of a I hate to say this of a writing style. I, yes, I, I, and I know people get a lot out of Continental philosophy. Yes. I like, well, I enjoy random correspondences. Uh, they were not random, um, more like partial yeah. metaphors. So you can, uh, you don't take it completely seriously. I think of it like the difference between the um, the Myers-Briggs personality test, which seems to capture regularities that people care about but isn't statistically grounded. So it's not cleaving reality at the joints. Gotcha. And the, anyway, the correspondence I use, just the sort of mail suitcase handle, is the sort of cliche idea of the left brain and the right brain. Okay. Continental philosophers are dreaming in a non-derogatory sense of that term. They're going into a very subjective place. And this makes it much... They're harder to read and they're it's much easier for them to make really catastrophic mistakes that they don't correct. And so I totally respect, lots of the people I respect, just stay the hell away from that whole cluster. I think there actually are valuable things to find, but you do have to dig through them. Uh, and, you know, if you go in and you accept everything they say, that is not going to go very well for you. Right. right. So my, my classic example, I think, is... Uh... I had a professor in college I absolutely loved and got a ton of value from. And he was a German professor, uh, and he, he taught political science. And he, uh, you know, one time I went to his office hours, and I was talking to him. And, and he focused on the European Union, which is great. We can talk about that later. It's a whole fascinating subject. Um, and he, you know, he was a political scientist by trade. And I was asking him for materials to read beyond the class you know what would he recommend and he said well there's this uh, philosopher named niklas luman and he said he's you know incredibly popular in germany but no one really reads him over here you know i I would start there i think you might get a lot of value from it so i went and i got one of his books one of the translations from the library it was just incredibly dense and 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 it was it's it's on systems theory and it was impossible for me to penetrate and i was left with this feeling that you know perhaps there's something there but also Perhaps this is just language, difficult language is used to occlude. Yes. And, and, and it's it, like, yeah. It definitely is. I see continental philosophy as providing some useful space to people who are actually truth-seeking, but being incredibly abusable. Yes. And because it's point. incredibly abusable, you find lots of people abusing it. Right. That, that, that's a really good point. So I, I guess we circled all the way back around to uh, what is a simulacra? Well, um, in Baudrillard's definition, uh, it relates to profound reality, which is not very uh, entirely clear what he means, but it seems to relate to what we would think of as object-level reality. If, uh, to use V's example, if there is a lion across the river, that's either true or it's false. That statement corresponds to an animal that could be across the river, or could be elsewhere, or could be a different animal. Um, so I'm actually, I think I'm sort of going to skip over Baudrillard's original language, if that's okay. Yeah, definitely. Uh, it was adapted, um, 
And I think you could argue about how faithful the adaptation was. It wasn't a blatant trans... I have read uh, excerpts from Baudrillard's essays about it to try to audit whether there was more good stuff there. But basically, it's a way of looking at symbols and language and their relationship to reality. Um, uh, when Zvi was on here, he focused uh, his definition on motivations, which I can't really fault. Uh, I've tended to go at more in terms of its structural relationship to reality. Okay. Like, um, there's the object-level reality. There's the, uh, the world out there. Then there are the words that we would use to communicate about this. I remember uh, when I was a child, um, this was my model of language. When I was very small, I didn't understand lying for a while. So you said things because they were true. Then gotcha. being true, combined with you wanting other people to know that they were true, was the motivation for saying them. So how could you say something that was false? Right. Uh, where would you even start? It was like those uh, old proofs that nothing heavier than air could fly. Gotcha. Those were level two. I round off to lying, but it's really uh, making statements with indifference to the truth. Um, so, if you can pick pretty much any politician, I think, and you'll almost certainly, with you know a couple of exceptions, both of which, to my knowledge, are dead. Um, yeah. The fact that they say something is not a reason to think that it's true. It doesn't really bear on the question very much. Um, they might be embarrassed to be caught out in a lie, but uh, if there was no way to verify it, if um, so embarrassment wasn't an issue, they're not intrinsically motivated to tell you things that correlate with the truth. Gotcha. Um, and it's interesting to think about where that motivation comes from. Um, it certainly has a moralizing tinge a lot of the times when we talk about it, but I think for us to get to morality, we have there has to be some structure underneath there. Uh, it was pointed out to me once that lying is very computationally expensive because <laughs> you need your uh, mental map of the world. Right. And you need your map of someone else's map. And you need your record of their divergences between what they believe the world is like and your map of what you believe the world is like. And you need to track that so that you don't uh, give away that the world is like the way you believe it's like. Gotcha. And it's sort of an ongoing computational drain as long as you interact with them and you don't want them to find out. Right. Um, at level, level one and level two makes sense to me intuitively. The reason I'm so fascinated by this, the, the, the place where it really gets interesting is level three. And level three is a statement that everyone knows is a lie or everyone knows is not true. But where that isn't uh, common knowledge, where not everyone knows that everyone knows and so it's not really out in the open. Gotcha. It's not uniformly understood. So, um, could you give an example of this? Because as V talked about, you know, the four levels. Yes. And, you know, I've gotten some feedback. It's like, well, well, it was really interesting, but it was perhaps like not broken down enough to after, be super understandable. Uh, and it's a comp it's a complex thing, right? After the uh, financial crisis, yeah, uh, a 
there was a politician who said in public that the fundamentals of our economy were strong. And he was embarrassed by that. It was bad for him. Um, because the fundamentals of our economy were not strong, apparently. So he's like, the, so the Federal Reserve tra- chairman, I, I assume it was Ben Bernanke. He might not have been. But he, he's trying to instill confidence. Yeah. So, so people don't go take all their money out of the banks and everything yeah. collapses. I think it was John McCain. John McCain. You can okay. edit that out if you. Interesting. Was, no. uh, That's cool. But he said, um, I think he wasn't expecting people to go, wait, what are the f- fundamentals of our economy? Are they strong? Gotcha. Um, he was operating at level three. And the reason we can tell it was three and not four is that it was bad for him when it came out that it wasn't true. I mean, not even when it came out that it wasn't true, but people pointed out that it wasn't true and that was embarrassing for him. It was a way to score points against. And so, I mean, I could be misdiagnosing any given particular example, but um, a lot of the times with level three, it's where people stop... um, really paying attention to does the statement correspond to reality i might just be lacking the skill to interpret it but most things most politicians say um seem very information light they don't seem like an honest attempt to explain how they're thinking both how they're modeling the world and what principles they use to act I don't um, have the sense that I have with Bertrand Russell or David Friedman or Sky Alexander or that uh, I've seen the heuristics they're actually using to make decisions. Right. Um, and pointing this out does not... Uh, it seems like this is sort of generally known. Like a while ago, there was a politician who said something... And people were saying that she had violated a social taboo, one of the isms. And I spent like half an hour trying to figure out whether she had or not. And I decided that it was different than other people I'd heard accused of it because I had no idea what she meant. I could not translate the statement she had made into any kind of empirical proposition or even really attitudinal. You could get a feeling from it, but... That's about it. Yes. And level four is where it's common knowledge and it's open. And I go back and forth in my own head about um, whether that actually gets achieved in a relevant sense. I think beat poetry would be an area where no one expects that, at least some beat poetry, that the words actually are intended to communicate anything. But I think maybe when we talk about, we may be looking at gradations of level three. Politicians uh, going closer to level four, but not quite making it. Gotcha. Interesting. Yeah. I don't, um, I have trouble intuitively understanding why common knowledge is so powerful. That everyone knows that everyone knows that everyone knows. Um, I've read some of the stuff about it, and... At this point, I'm willing to accept on, not even really on faith, because I've seen the examples, but it's hard for me to wrap my head around. Why common knowledge is so important. Yeah, uh, uh, as opposed to mutual knowledge. Gotcha. Um, 
if everyone knows, and everyone suspects that everyone knows, it intuitively feels like that should get you most of the way there. Right. But it seems like it, there's some sort of phase transition, like water turning into ice, that happens when um, everyone knows that everyone knows that everyone knows that everyone knows ad infinitum. Gotcha. That's really interesting. Sorry, gears are spinning. Yeah. <laughs> so, what do you think? You know, we talked with V about this for for a while. <laughs> do you think there has actually been a a phase transition over time around how people talk? I think it has changed. I'm not sure it's that kind of wire into ice really clear thing. Um, Perhaps it's more subtle. Yeah, Nixon, uh, President Nixon, was accused of involvement in the break-in, and it was huge. And I talked to my parents, and I talked to some other... I've talked to some other people who are around, and they say it really was huge. They weren't pretending to be outraged. They didn't believe that the president was involved in break-ins, crime. Um... And that's a little bit hard for me, too. I mean, there might be context that I'm missing, but I've read about it, and I don't think there is. Um, It's sort of assumed um, when I grew up that people in power were probably doing some shady stuff behind the scenes. Right. And a lot of it was probably technically illegal. And, you know, really illegal in the sense that if you weren't the president, you probably would not be well advised to be doing it. Right. And that seems like something that really um, has changed. Well, and we also see this with media, right? Yes. You know, have, do you ever watch old movies? Sometimes, yeah. Have you ever noticed that they can be really on the nose? Yeah. Does that make sense? Like, yes. In a way that very direct. Like movies today, I'm just thinking like uh, Tenet or yes, you know these that are commonly watched yes. that everyone sees. I feel like. It would really blow people's minds back then. I don't know. There's a clarity to... I've seen quite a bit of Hitchcock and stuff from the 60s and 70s. I wasn't quite sure how old you were talking about. Uh, Not a lot of silent movies. Um, Although I have seen a couple to sort of evaluate the form. Yeah. Try to understand what people were doing. Um, But it's very... The dialogue in Psycho covers ground. Um... It feels less murky. And I'm not even sure that that's a... There are some very murky movies that I think are wonderful artistically. Yeah. Um, I sort of wonder... But yeah, I see it. And um, there's also a movement into meta. References of references of references of... Gotcha. Which is not necessarily a bad thing. I, I love meta humor. I really... Yeah. Um, it pokes me someplace... But uh, we do seem to have moved. This is a cliche, and you know, I'm repeating it partly because it's a cliche, and because it's a cliche I've heard from people I trust not to repeat things just because they're cliches. Right. So, um, but we seem to have moved into sort of ironic detachment. Uh, there's less, um, maybe less straightforward emotion. I'm not totally sure that there's less genuine emotion, but it's more tied up in layers of meta, an ironic distance. 
Gotcha. Uh, I think some of this probably goes to uh, John Nurst. Uh, Everything stays. The blog Everything stays. He writes about um, how in the ancestral environment. Uh, I don't think I'm butchering this, but uh, I apologize to him if I am. In the ancestral environment, um, you had physical reality and you had social reality. But everyone you knew, you'd known for your life, and they knew you for your life. And it's this very closed environment. And so unless something was actually a secret that only you knew, or maybe only you and your best friend knew, it was common knowledge. You could... um, his. He's talking about uh, Christmas in this context. Some people... uh, And he says that we used to be able to assume that everybody celebrated Christmas. And now lots of people still celebrate Christmas, but not everyone celebrates Christmas. And that changes things in a way that... So I think partly um, our brains sort of almost by default treat aspects of social reality the way they treat physical reality. Um, gotcha. The taboos that will get you stoned aren't uh, very different from the laws of gravity. Right. Except, and increasingly, we're in a very a multicultural society, and we're encountering people who don't take those things for granted. Right. And this is fascinating. I mean, we have a lot to learn from it, uh, but it's also really disquieting for a lot of people. Right. And I think, um, I don't know. I've got, I've got two thoughts there. Yeah. Uh, one thought. So I, I live kind of between two worlds a little bit. So, you know, I'm from deeply rural Eastern North Carolina. Yeah. And I went to a, you know, I went to the university of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. And then, and now I'm kind of been transformed into, you know, culturally into this other yeah. social class, right? Yeah. Um, like what you would call the American elite, so to speak, right? Yeah. You know, like to a certain extent. Um, that might be a, a, a big, you know, coastal elites, like they've got all these different words yeah. for them, right? Um, it, well, and that's, so I go in back and forth between these circles every yeah. once in a while. And it's amazing. Yeah. It, it's a, it, it really is amazing because culturally, they seem so different now, yeah. and I don't think this was always the case. Yes, uh, perhaps it is. Um, and no, I think it's. Do you think it's a real phenomenon? Yes. Um, and and I, I want to bring up this example of Trump and truth. Yes. Okay, so Hopefully. I think this is incre- I think this is really important. Yeah. Um, so I go and I talk to everyone um, that lives in this metropolis, right? We yes. live in. And, uh, you know, everyone's like, you know, Trump, he lies all the time. He's always lying. And, you know, he says things that are not true. Like, yeah. <laughs> he says things that aren't true. Like, you know, you, we, can pull, we can pull up counsel as examples yes. of this. Um, but he's very, you know, someone had a campaign speech late in, the, late in the campaign, right before election, that illustrated this perfectly. And I can't quite remember it. But the gist of it was, you know, and then I go back to Eastern North Carolina in these different circles. And... You know, they're like, well, Trump, he's like, he's he's so true to himself. Yes. So there's like the, there's truth as in matching the territory. Yes. Right. And then there's truth as in he is like in some really weird sense, so true to, he's like 
the most true person to himself, right? Yes. Like, there's no executive function, or like I don't know what it is. Well, Benjamin Hoffman has a blog post that yeah. I. It's awkward when you think you know what someone's talking about and you get it wrong. And yeah. I want you to tell me if I get it wrong. Sure. But he says um, he is not a fan of Trump, so he's probably not phrasing this charitably. But yeah. he's not being hyperbolic. I mean, needlessly hyper. Yeah. I have a category for that where you're not making an effort to be charitable, but you're also not saying Trump eats babies when there's no reason to think he eats babies. Right, right. Um, Clinton... Voters think honesty is reciting a list of literally true statements. Matt, Trump voters, the territory. Yeah. He calls that the perjury standard. Trump voters think honesty is poor impulse control because <laughs> they don't trust that you would actually recite the true statements if you have the chance to think about it. Right. And I'm not sure I blame them for that. I mean, if you actually go sentence by sentence, they're not meeting that standard. I mean, I worry that I harp on that too much, and I'm irritating everyone, but the last politician I know of to actually meet either the literal accuracy or the good-faith communication thing, you know, yeah. the way that I would look for someone to do it if they were someone I would have a you know beer with, to, right, right. was Bertrand Russell, and he never got elected. Right. They called him... Uh, his donors called him into the back room early in his campaign and asked if it was true that he didn't go to church. And he said, yeah, that's true. This was, uh, I think, in the 30s? Yeah. Sounds it was right. definitely well before the 50s. Cause, uh, and they asked if he would be willing to start. And, well, no, that would be dishonest. And, you know, I don't... I really don't mean that to be a Christian, non-Christian thing. Yeah. It's... It's about not, um, that would be dishonest, so I'm not going to do it. Right. And that is something you would see in a comedy today. I mean, it's not in the hypothesis <laughs> space. Right. It's not, um, it isn't just that they're trying to meet that standard or fail and failing it or pretending to try and meet that standard and suddenly not doing it. Right. We don't have that standard on, and uh, I doubt Russell was typical for the time, but, um, I, yeah. That's really interesting. I also wanted to, the second point I wanted to cover was, have you heard of Jim Flynn? You know the philosopher Jim Flynn? He has this idea that we're just getting better abstraction capability. Yes. Um, and so, like, because more of the things we do are abstract, like, it's just, like, something we're getting more used to and more used to. Do you think that plays into it? Like, increasing abstraction levels uh, throughout our society and in everything we do? I think so, yeah. I mean, I mean, it I mean seems Marx like it had should. this complaint, right? Like, yes. You know, there's like this abstraction from you used to be the yes. guy who made the violin, and yes. now you make one part of it or something. Alienation from yeah, this alienation labor, idea. which I think is a real, not a fan of Marx, but I think that's a real psychological effect. Probably one and of he his gets best credit ideas. for it. Yeah. <laughs> Probably the one, but yeah. Um, yeah, it really feels like that's onto something. Uh, Increasing abstraction, increasing symbolic manipulation. And the other half of it in the simulacra model is that at levels three and particularly four, you're not looking at the physical world at all. So COVID is the best example I hope we will have in our lifetimes of something that 
you know, you can't talk to it. You right. can't persuade it. it. Is totally, totally immune to any kind of social manipulation. Um, it's just ground level reality. Right. Which doesn't mean that people aren't doing the social manipulation right, on top exactly. of that. Uh, so, I think. Well, it almost makes sense. Like the, I remember Scott Alexander had blog post about the um, race cars, the Myers race car. I think. Yeah. About how if you optimize a race car to go really fast, it's not going to be very comfortable. Oh, right. Really. As as the mechanics say, yes. uh, uh, in in uh, Eastern North Carolina, you can yes. make it go fast or make it last a long time. Yes. You know, like pick one of them. Right. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. So if people's brains are better at manipulating abstract symbols that aren't attached to physical reality, they're worse at looking at physical reality. Um, Someone on Less Wrong, uh, I forget exactly who. This is another one of those correspondences that's inexact. They theorized that human brains had sort of two different modes. Um, One designed to not get eaten by lions in all the physical world, and one designed not to get eaten thrown out of the tribe really will get eaten by lions which manipulates the social right social world yeah yeah that's really well put and these trade-offs are are very real yeah you know that joe henrich and i like i need to look up his pronunciation of his name because i mentioned him so much but uh he wrote secrets of our success and he talks a lot about how you know language development yes certain regions of the brain like broca's region i believe uh, you know, they get bigger and other regions get smaller to compensate. And, like, there are all these real trade-offs. When, yeah. And it would make sense there's a trade-off here as well. Yes. I think so. Um, I can't figure... You may want to cut this part. Sure. I'm conflicted. I don't like level three. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. Uh, lies that everyone knows are lies bigger. I don't like level three, and I grew up with it. And level four does not seem to me like it would be stable. You couldn't run a society like that. Right. And so every, I guess you're really rich. Yes. Perhaps. Yes. And you can for a well, you can for a while. Yeah, yeah. Well, I ruin a nation. Yes, absolutely. So I have a little bit of a. A lot of the. I think accelerationism is a failure mode I see a lot of smart people falling into and it almost never works but I am kind of a little bit yeah let's you know Lenin let's make things worse so that people will be motivated to make them better but if level 4 wouldn't be stable um, it might be better to accelerate it but I have a meta level heuristic warning me that that's a very hazardous train of thought I think people tend to overrate how much people put up, like they under, sorry, they underrate how much yes. people put up with yes. in that sense. Right. So like, yes, we will push to failure so that we can start again. Right. Like, yes. But like, it, what, it, what's the saying, you know, the market will stay solvent uh, yes. longer. You, market will stay rational longer than you can stay solvent. Yes. I, I think that's a real effect. Yes. Um, I even had a, I had fancy, uh, I had a concept. Um, I had this idea that we think, last I heard we didn't have it nailed down, but we think that you empathize with other people 
by telling your brain to emulate theirs. You right. take yourself as a jumping off point and you modify it. And so I had, I was calling it nudge theory, but that turned out to be something else Cast called nudge theme. theory. Yeah. Yes. Took that already. Sorry. So I think I'm going to call it shove theory or something. <laughs> yeah, that there's this temptation to, when someone else is being different than you in a way that's irritating, um, and it's not, you know, obviously physical, like their leg yeah. is broken, you think if you just give them a shove, they will slip back into the normal default way of being, which right. is the way you are. Yeah. And, you know, we can see why that would be tempting out of proportion to it actually working. Right. Um, so I think that's probably part of it, that you imagine you give the system a good hard shock, other people will start to see things the way you see things. Right. And, um, which is also... I'm sort of skipping over all the ethical issues involved, partly because I don't have any power. I mean, it's one of the nice things about not having a whole lot of power is you can actually think about what you want to happen without worrying that you're going to be able to do it. Right. Well, don't I underrate your uh, your power there, Quinn. It's, oh, uh, thanks. It's uh, perhaps, you know, perhaps this is just an irrational yeah. Christian morality I have, but I yeah. do believe, you know, everyone is... Everyone does have intrinsic value, and and by God, I have the same for it. very, very strong the same feeling. Yeah, um, except like maybe literally brain dead people. Yeah, perhaps. <laughs> I always list the exceptions yes. so I can sincerely say the. <laughs> yes, but no doubt. Uh, yes, I. I definitely see what you're saying. It's interesting, right? Things that, and I look back at things that have actually gotten, let's say, our act together. Let's just say the U.S. here. In yeah. The US. Okay. Well, George Washington, after the Articles of Confederation, perhaps, you know, and then probably FDR yeah. with World War Two. Yes. And, like, all these things were, like, really pretty horrible. Yes. You know, and, like, even, like, COVID, like Zvi said, not, huh. not a big enough shove, right? Yeah. So, like... It it seems like the level is so high, right? I mean, how many people died in World War Two? Like that's the it's incredible and the, the destruction and just like the hor the horrific human cost. I don't know. It was a huge shove. I mean, and it was yes. World War One was a huge shove. Yep. Which was. Which is, uh, certainly hope not to see that again. Yeah. Well, you know, humans get in this weird, we get these weird, equi you know, inadequate equilibrium, yes. so to speak, where, <laughs> you know, these horrible, horrible, horrible things can happen. And, you know, you and I, you helped me with this. I wrote a piece. And,. It detailed a path forward for Uyghur persecution in yes. uh, Western China. Like, there, ha and, and part of that is my belief. You know, you, I, I wonder how much of our current malaise is like people just not believing. Yes. Anything you can do, anything. Yes. And I and I got a lot of pushback on on the internet. Some from Chinese bots, which huh. must be I'm on the right path, right? Yeah. But that uh, that it really is not possible, and that why would you ever try? That would be stupid. 
Hmm. But my thought is, like, man, like, that seems to be the consensus view. It's like, well, yes. you can't really try. This is too difficult to do anything about. And then nothing gets done, and then self-fulfilling. Yes. There's also a pattern. I think it's a useful pattern some of the time. But every time I, almost every time I know I said I. You propose doing something. Right. But your proposal has a flaw. I don't mean you're specifically, no, 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 I mean yeah, in yeah, general. Yes, yes, absolutely. And so you can't do anything and we should stop trying. Right. And, you know, that's just, that's not how we've accomplished practice. You go down the blind alley. Yeah. And it seems like there are people who... I can't figure out if their heuristic is if your proposal isn't literally perfect, you stop there, or if they're looking for a reason to stop there. Um, but there's a very strong... I see this with people playing around with scientific hypotheses on the yeah. internet. Um, Someone will suggest a hypothesis, a way the world could be, and start trying to think of tests. And other people will say, you shouldn't say that, you have no proof. Right. And that's not how science works. You think exactly. of the hypothesis and then you do the tests. And it took seeing people do this when people were literally talking about how to do the tests. Right. And exactly. people saying, stop talking about how to do the tests because we can't prove that's true. Right. Which is what the tests are for. Exactly. Um. I, I really liked that thing you wrote. I liked, um, I think on an emotional level, believing that it can fix the problem is beyond me. But the idea of propagating a culture where people try to do that stuff, um, the idea that it could set things into motion that would cause the problem to be fixed is not beyond me. Right, and, and I, I want to interject, hold, hold the thought. Um, that's actually, I've been working on writing the mission for like, okay, what is this like media project we're doing here with yeah. narratives? And I think it's, it's that for me, yeah. for me, it's like just trying to reinforce the people that big things are possible. Yes. And that, cause like, you know, maybe this Hail Mary past we, we put together yeah. won't work. Yeah. We hope it does. Yeah. Absolutely. And we'll, we'll try as hard as we can to make it work. But per, if everyone was doing that. Yeah. You get to better equilibrium. Yeah, I mean, first, I mean, there's just, there's the comparatively unromantic, but um, flat, t fat tails. Right. That lots of things are worth doing, even if they probably won't work. And there's also, there's this almost virtue ethic sense of, if you try to do things, you'll become the kind of person who does things, and eventually some of those things will succeed. Right, exactly. And, and, there's this weird statistical, and you know we're both in the rationalist community. Yeah. You could say so. Like, it's uh, um, this is a weird thing for me to to say, but it's it's almost like a lot of these problems can't be looked at exactly in statistical terms. Yeah. And like, uh, so I was talking to my friend Eric. You know, we worked on the startup together. It's been like four years, and it was like this crazy hard journey. Yeah. And we counted, you know, and he's a statistician, and we're sitting there, and we counted, like, 12 different times where there was, like, a 75% chance we wouldn't make it to the next week. Huh. And you start, like, multiplying out the prob probabilities that you ever get where you are, and it's, like, nothing, right? Yeah. <laughs> and it's something about, like, well, you know, you just got to keep showing up and keep trying, and if you do believe there will be a, a positive outcome, and 
sometimes you can make it happen, I guess. Yeah. Um, hold on, I'm going to drink a little bit of this stuff. Get amped up. I love yeah. it. And back on without breathing. I love it. That's so, awesome. So, again, I feel free to tell me if I'm off. No. Yudkowski on Facebook, um, yeah. so less you know visible than. Right, right. Says that people do this. That sometimes they um, add up a bunch of probabilities and say all these things have to happen, and they don't pay any attention to disjunctive probabilities. That there's more than one way for X to happen. Interesting. So he says you can, um, that there's a rhetorical trick you can do where you drive the probability to anything almost zero <laughs> just by listing apparently essential steps that aren't actually essential. Ah, uh, interesting. So. Yeah, that's a really good way of, way of thinking about it. Yeah. I do think trying to think in statistics sometimes that we sometimes have hardware that works better than when we try to formally model stuff figuring out when to use which is a hard problem but right right and some of these things are so complex it's just like if you took the time it would be impossible uh, and I wanted to also talk about this issue it seems like the rationalist community is especially bad. There was an article on Less Wrong a while back where it's like, why have, okay, if like if rationalists are better at seeing like all the cognitive biases, like why aren't yes. they more successful than they are, yes. right? Um, and and I, I wonder if some of this like plays into that, right? Yes. I think so. I think this and we may be thinking of the same article. Um, Scott has an article where he says that and he says, um, that uh, most humans are actually pretty optimal at getting the things they really care about, which are gotcha. things like status. Um, so he says we can expect efficient charity to be able to make big improvements because most charity isn't really about altruism. Gotcha. So people trying to clear up cognitive biases will find a ton there. But we shouldn't expect rationalists to necessarily very strongly outperform um, people uh, in high competition areas where people are actually trying to do the thing. Interesting. This kind of ties into the secret of our success stuff. I mean, cultural evolution. Right. I think a lot of people aren't modeling explicitly, but they still learn to do the thing. Right. Hmm. Which I think is, um, you know, I guess it's, I have the sense that was really depressing for people who were in the rationalist movement before I was, but when I came in, it was kind of already known, so it's hard to really feel it as a loss. Right. That, that's a good point. That's a really good point. Do you, uh, do you remember the Peter Thiel talk I sent you? Yeah. With, uh, oh, God, with Reagan's speechwriter. Who was it? Pete Robinson. Pete Robinson. I remember the talk. Uh, I may not have all the details. Okay, there, there's this one line that I remember, this one anecdote, where it's like, well, you know, if you go to a modern rationalist meetup, 
and you come out of the meetup and oh, you're yeah. thinking, oh, like, man, I'm really a rational person and like I, I can I remember that, the world. Yeah. Uh, you've somehow gotten the wrong message. Yes. Just like if you go to an uh, evangelical Bible study and you come out and you're like, wow, I have no sin and I'm a great person. You've like somehow yeah. gotten the wrong message. Yes. Um, there's this pattern where there's a group that's dedicated to doing X yeah. and the movement sort of. I think Chapman touches on this with geeks, mops, and sociopaths, yeah. or um, the Gervais principle. Or, yeah. um, it, the group becomes sort of diluted, and it becomes more about the stuff that most groups are about, which are not bad things to be about. The group group stuff. Yeah. Like, yeah. But it does leave you out in the cold if you really cared about the original thing. Um, right. I left a... I had very bad social anxiety as a teenager, so I wasn't actually talking to them, but I was reading this libertarian website and mentally identifying with the community. And I left when I figured out that this particular website, I am not generalizing, just the people in this community, um, when they said skeptical, they meant, or critical, they meant people who had come to the conclusion that government was bad. And it didn't matter how terrible the reasoning was. I mean, you can absolutely have terrible reasoning for a true conclusion. Right. Um, but, and it wasn't just that they wanted people who agreed with them. It was that, you know, you shouldn't say you're doing critical thought if your argument is terrible. Right. I mean, so there is, I guess that was a free association on my part. Oh, yeah. Or part of one. Just, um groups claiming to be about one thing and sort of not even it bugged me that they were using the word i mean unless wrongly talk about now 101 space how sometimes you need everyone to accept that ai is possible to talk about what to do about ai to have the next conversation and right. i believe in that but i don't think you should say you're using critical thought when you're not right I mean, and just very blatantly not. I'm realizing I can't really put into words how bad the arguments were without going into detail, but there's a difference between this is a subtle flaw you might not have noticed, this is an obvious flaw that might not be obvious to you, and this has the sort of glaring flaw that, now looking back on it, I'm guessing was there on purpose to signal in-group affiliation. Right, exactly. It's interesting. Huh. And I wonder... I wonder how our experience is different than, like, you know, everyone on the West Coast, and it's mostly, yeah. you know, because, like, I, I get all this, like, feedback, I guess, well, not all this, but, you know, I've talked to people, and they're like, oh, you know, like, the rationalist community is like this, like, everybody that reads Slate's yes. and, and, you know, I was like, wow, like, my experience has been completely different, but yes. then again, there's, like, five of us here in North Carolina. Yes. And uh, we're all pretty cool. And, yeah. you know, I've learned a ton from these people. And no one's, like, got these presumptions or... Yeah. If, if that makes sense. And, and things... And I wonder if because the groups are so small in yes. comparison to the rest of the population, you get a certain sense of, like, group identity perhaps. And, like, uh, yes. you can have these real conversations and be open because the groups aren't huge. Yes. I think so. Dunbar's number. Yeah. And... That's um, a good point. Being able to model, having few enough people that you can model their positions in detail. That's a really good point. Um, I think that helps. And I think we don't have a lot of stuff to steal, uh, at least here in Raleigh. There yeah. isn't a Chapman's Geeks Mops, and 
here's this model, again, maybe butchering this, I don't think I am, but uh, the geeks set up in the subculture, yeah. oriented around doing something that the geeks are into. That attracts mops, uh, members of the public, who are not geeks about it, but enjoy consuming it. Yeah. And the mops are resources. I mean, they can be, you can make use of mops, uh, because they're less fixated on the thing, and that attracts sociopaths. Ugh. The sociopaths take over the organization and use it to drive social capital, and ends up not having very much to do with what the geeks originally the set up, up to do. Yeah. And, you know, we actually had this discussion. Yeah. It was probably a year ago. I remember this. I think you were there, and we were talking yeah. about it. And it was like, uh, you know, like, should we advertise? Should we publicize? Yeah. And my conclusion was... No, I don't think so. Yes, I, I think I agreed I with think, you. Very I think strongly. things are like at an optimal number, right? Because yes. when things get too big, what you just described always seems to happen. Yes, yeah. It always degrades, and yeah. it, you like and, and like Zvi said, you know, good founders can maybe slow that down or maybe yes. maybe reverse that. Yes. but it's very difficult. I remember this conversation. I very strongly agreed with you. I was trying to. I remember trying to figure out how to communicate that I very strongly agreed without you know, right. feeling pressured or. Right, exactly. And, but it, it sounds weird. It sounds exclusionary almost to a certain extent. Well, it, it's not arbitrarily exclusionary. I think a lot of the time, a lot of things are prices. Yeah. Yeah, so I don't know if this applies here, but maybe being exclusionary is bad. But it's not literally worse than anything else that can happen. So sometimes it will be worth doing it to get to some other goal. And I think it's a sort of, um, it's what Bertrand Russell means sometimes when he says democratic. Yeah. There isn't like a set of ironclad laws that exclude people. And right. there isn't really, you know, a dictator crossing their names off a list. Right. Um, it, it would never say no if anybody wants to come. Yeah. So, it, you know, it is open in that sense it's just not we're not evangelical yes perhaps yeah which i think you know i don't think that would be a good strategy uh at least for the stuff i'm trying to get out of it right exactly i, th I think you're, i think it would be it would not be optimal huh. um you mentioned bertrand russell Can yeah you tell me a little bit about him uh, why you find him valuable and, and why people should read more of his well, work. Partly is, um, I always start by acknowledging the, you know, the less, the biases, kind of. So I had a collection of quotes as a child. Yeah. And I went through and highlighted all of the quotes attributed to that name because I loved all of them. Nice. Um, and then I bought, my mother bought me one of his books as I, um, we went to a bookstore and I read it. And it's Would difficult. You know which one it was? Yeah, it was uh, Why I Am Not Christian. It was very uh, anti-religious in a sense. But it was, I read it and I read Sam Harris's Letter to a Christian Nation. And, gotcha. you know, I'm fine with Sam Harris. Uh, I think he has some valuable stuff to say. Kind of the new atheist. The thing that really stood out was there were so much in the, it was the process of reasoning in the Russell book. And yeah. it was the general models that were he had the set of mental heuristics that i value in rationalists he valued logic and reason he was prepared to i learned about charity and i didn't know that 
I didn't use that's Scott's word for it. Um, yeah. I don't think, you know, exclusive to Scott, but I learned that he would often, and I learned how useful charity can be as persuasion. He he did this trick. The Zvi Mauschwitz does this trick too, I've been noticing, um, where you make very literally precise statements and you make positive charitable assumptions and you give breathing room. And so you're going along technically and precisely and carefully and not jumping to any conclusions yeah. and not engaging in any hyperbole. And then you say something that sounds incredibly hyperbolic. And the reader, uh, me, uh, I want to say, okay, that's obviously an exaggeration, but you realize it's not. It's not. It's literally true. Right. Um, stuff about our handling of the coronavirus is a... Because what's actually happened is terrible. I mean, and it's... Um, I, I don't really have a good... Our handling of it has been incredibly inept. Um, right. In the literal sense of incredibly. So if you just tell people what it is, I think... I think what I had was a system that categorized any sufficiently extreme statements as hyperbole. And Russell could get in behind that because he was so obviously not being hyperbolic. Right. And Scott Alexander does this too. Um, I don't want to make it sound more malicious than it is. It, uh, I don't think it would work if they didn't have some drive to get to the truth. Right. Um, so... I feel like I kind of dodged the question. Russell was uh, incredible. He um, made very important discoveries in philosophy of mathematics, which I'm mostly not very educated about um, relative to his other stuff. He attempted to ground mathematics in formal logic, which is more difficult than it sounds. He published a 200-page logical proof that I think it was one and one is two. It might have been two and two is four. Gotcha. But he managed to get into formal logic, but it didn't he uh, was politically active, and he wrote essays such that even when I disagree with his points, I still find value in the logic. Um, he actually commissioned what we know today as the peace sign, as okay. the symbol for his Committee for Nuclear Disarmament. He was incredibly extroverted, such that if you know anyone interested in the same sort of stuff as him, yeah. uh, you Google it, and there's a connection there, uh, which is nice. He was childhood friends with A.A. Uh, a. Milne, who wrote the Winnie the Pooh books, for oh, instance. Wow. Um, and, you know, so he pops up in the strangest places. He also ran a progressive children's school really? for 16 years as the headmaster. Um, he was very—he resembled Scott Alexander in that he was interested in literally everything, and he tried to integrate everything with everything else. Which I, I, I really respect. As a schoolmaster, sorry to cut in. Yeah. Um, did he write anything about that? Did, was there Some. Any, um, any learnings from about education? I think he's written quite a bit, but uh, I haven't read. I've read some parts of it. Gotcha. Um, I gather that he was incredibly permissive. He has a early section where he says that you can't let children do literally whatever they want to do because if you do that, the very small ones will eat pens. <laughs> um, I think he was speaking kind of. Brian Kaplan, I think, just wrote a thing arguing for unschooling with math because math is something you really need to think about a lot of stuff and it's not fun to learn. Yeah. Um, Russell wrote a lot about what the 
school, the mainstream schools were like. And I actually think this, there's this weird dynamic with awful history. Um, it seems like there's some historical images, uh, Auschwitz, for instance, that get repeated again and again and again, and we fixate on. And then there are other things we do that they're viscerally terrible to read, and so nobody reads them. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing. I mean, it hurts. But um, right. so I am. I'm pretty sure that what he was doing was a significant improvement at the time. Less sure that it was literally optimal, but that goes to what we were talking about earlier. Right. That a lot of the times you can do better without. Exactly. Um. was uh but for me he was the he taught me a lot of mental habits and I think he validated a lot of mental habits that I had that I'd find in our people afterwards but not for a long while very cool what else what's the most valuable piece of knowledge you've gotten from Bertrand Russell that would be valuable you think to most people to, to hear Oh. That's a tough um, question, I know. Yeah, it is. On many, it's, there are many levels to that question. There's a lot that is sort of implicit, which means you can drag it out, and I'm going to try to, but it, there's a section in a book he wrote about Chinese history. Oh, yeah. Um, where he's talking about I think it's China and Japan, but I'm not sure. Um, gotcha. It might be China and Russia. I've forgotten the other. And they have this peace talk, and it breaks down. And this is happening in 1920. So we don't have video of it breaking down. Yeah. We don't have records. The Chinese say one thing, and I'm going to say the Japanese. The yeah. other people say something else. Yeah. And Russell says, well, we don't have any sort of direct evidence. We there's right. no way to in terms of our records or so people who are sympathetic to the Chinese will tend to believe the Chinese and people who are sympathetic to the Japanese will believe the Japanese and for my part I believe the Chinese yeah. and what he was saying was um, what I got out of it was sort of priors that he thought the Chinese story was more plausible um I don't think he was being sarcastic. I think he was pointing to the gap between what you would do as what today I would call a Bayesian and what you would do if you're using evidence to convince other people. He just admits that the evidence to convince other people isn't there if they have different priors. Gotcha. Um, but one reason I said that's sort of implicit is that when I say just that quote, it sounds like he's being sarcastic or... Right. Euphemistic. Or, um, one of the things I notice reading him, he has a reputation for being uh, witty and sort of, people say the word sarcastic a lot, and I notice that he almost never is in the technical sense of the word. He uses understatements. He uses, <laughs> um, he uses biting turns of phrase, but he almost never does that thing where you say the opposite of... Almost right. everything he says is literally true and important and relevant. Yeah. It's just framed in a sardonic, biting sort of way. Awesome. And I really appreciate that, because in text, yeah. 
being sarcastic can be very difficult. Yes. You know, like it's like on Twitter, you just come across yeah. poorly. And, you know, there's some people I really respect on Twitter that are oftentimes yeah. sarcastic. And it's just, it's impossible for people to tell. Yeah. Or, or it's difficult. And I, I think it's a poor habit in, in, yes. in written form. We are figuring out. I see people using a little bracket with sarcasm after it sometimes. <laughs> That's great. It's culture. I mean, yeah. it's evolving. But yeah. Just no, nice. That's cool. So what else about Bertrand Russell? You know, where would you recommend people start with Bertrand? Well, I, um, there is a very, very, very good chance that he has written about something that interests you. That's I, I don't mean one of the various things that interest you. I mean that if there's something that interests you and it existed at all in his own day, yeah. um, there is a very good chance that he has at least an essay about it and maybe a book. I have no idea how he wrote that much. I really <laughs> don't. Um, he wrote a uh, introduction to the philosophy of mathematics during the three months he was in prison for protesting World War One. Really? Yeah. That's cool. Um, but I think I might look at um, type his name and quotes into. I mean, I started with quotes from him in the book. Find yeah. a quote you like, and then read the thing it's from because the thing it's from will be very good. Okay. Um, and the quotes let you sample a lot of different things and if they put ellipses in the quotes the parts they're leaving out are probably pretty significant gotcha. he didn't when he was a young boy he used to uh, do this game with himself uh, he was very lonely and very isolated and he used to try to phrase a sentence to use as few words as possible while still communicating all of the information nice. and so he doesn't waste words very cool that's important to keep in mind well Quinn yeah. Thank you so much for coming on. Well, thank you for having me. And we'll definitely so have you on again. I would like that. Very cool. Well, thanks. Well, that's our show for today. I'm Will Jarvis. And I'm Will's dad. Join us next week for more narratives. 